morning again. I'm Jeff, and uh, I am one of the pastors here at GCF Valley. And again, it's really great to see you here uh, this morning. Uh, GCF exists to glorify God, and we do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And one of the ways, that very practical ways that we glorify God is by taking note and being able to praise him and thank him for the good things that he is doing. And uh, church, he's doing a lot of really good things uh, in our midst. Uh, I have the uh, privilege this morning to uh, inform you, let you know, to announce that we have two uh, elder candidates to present to you. And those men, uh, Brian DeBoer and Mike Mosbach. And so, did I just hear, <laughs> it's going to be okay. <laughs> That's good. These men are gifts uh, to our church. They are gifts from the Lord to us, and uh, we really look forward to how they're, they're going to grow and continue to help us shepherd you and care for you. If you're wondering, like, where do, where do we look for elders? Where do potential elders come from? You know, there, there's nothing secretive. This is not a clandestine sort of uh, group of guys or anything like that. Elders are first men who are exemplary church members. And both Brian and Mike have shown themselves to be those men uh, really over the years, even decades. So as elders, we eagerly desire your feedback and your affirmation of these two men. So please reach out to Drew, to myself, to Dave. We want to hear from you. Uh, any questions that you have and certainly uh, any of your concerns. On that, I want to let you know of a really important meeting next Sunday morning at 8.45. That is during our normal uh, Sunday school hour. Uh, that's going to be right here, and it will really be a uh, get-to-know-your-new-elder candidates and really, by extension, get-to-know-your-elders even a little bit more. Uh, I want you to hear from particularly Mike and Brian and Dave of of some of uh, their testimony, how the Lord has worked in their life, uh, how, why they're passionate about gospel ministry here and, and why they're really passionate about serving the Lord in this capacity uh, as an elder candidate moving forward. So uh, that's going to be a really, really important meeting next Sunday morning. Uh, as elders uh, here at, at GCF Valley, we really take this eldering thing seriously because we are going to give an account before God for how we shepherd your souls. And on Judgment Day, that's, that's uh, sobering, very, very sobering. So this is serious work that we're involved in. And as a member of this local church, you want to know, you, you really need to know the men that you are entrusting uh, your spiritual life to, the men who will feed you and teach you and watch over you. So it is really vital as a member that you be here next Sunday morning, 845. It's, it's actually one practical way that you are faithful to fulfill uh, part of your commitment to this body of believers. And so I would encourage you members, if you know that you're going to be away next Sunday or you're not going to be able to be here, I would encourage you to reach out to your home group leader sometime this week and let them know that's going to be really important. Now, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a member, you're a faithful attender, I really want to encourage you to be here next Sunday morning, 845 as well. This will be a great chance for you to get to know us a little bit more and uh, to, to find out a little bit more and to learn a little bit more of who we are as a church body. And uh, I trust that the Lord will give you grace uh, for that as well. 
Also next Sunday morning, I'm going to give you, I'll fill in a few more details as to the process, how we got here uh, with these two men in particular, and what this looks like moving forward, particularly over this next year, as both Mike and Brian are elder candidates. So I'll spell that out in a little more detail and give you a sense for all the things that have happened, really kind of behind the scenes, the prayers, the interviews, and a whole bunch of other things. So uh, when is this meeting? Okay, I'm gonna, we'll, we'll do it again, Kira. Uh, this meeting is when? 8.45 next Sunday morning, encourage you to be here. At this point, I wanna invite Mike and Brian up on stage. If you guys would come up. I wanna make sure that uh, you folks have a name and a face that go together and the right name and the right face together. That's gonna be step one. Hi, Mike. Hello. Mike. Hi, Brian. Brian. So I'm just gonna pray for these guys now. And again, I, I want to uh, pray with us and uh, as you have the opportunity, and you'll have several opportunities here over the next several weeks to say hi, get to know these guys, uh, you will be blessed. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness to us as a church. Thank you, Lord, for always meeting our needs, very practical needs. Lord, you know that uh, we need more elders. And so I thank you for raising up Brian. I thank you for raising up Mike. I thank you, Lord, for their love for you, their love for this church, their love for the dear sweet people here. And I pray, Lord, that uh, as, as you've brought them to this point, that you would continue to lead them. I pray, Lord, that this, particularly this next year, Lord, as an elder candidate, that, uh, that it would be a year of great growth for them, a year of, of, of great courage, that, that you would continue to show your goodness and kindness to them, and yes, by extension to us as your people. We are grateful for them. We are grateful for their families. And I pray, Lord, your blessing on them and on us as a church as we move forward. We'll entrust this whole process to you. And Lord, we'll do this with joy and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Guys. Okay. If you have your Bibles, uh, I encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew's very first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28, and our text this morning will be just those last few verses, verses 16 through 20. As you're turning there, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, what happened to Mark? Where did Mark go? We will be back in Mark in two weeks from today. Uh, but we uh, want to give just a couple of weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, to, to really think and uh, talk and pray with you about uh, our life together as a church and what really is important as we move forward in the fall here as a church. After that, we get to Mark, and that it will be full speed ahead. If you're able to, please stand as I read Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? 
Our great God and heavenly Father, give us your grace in these minutes that we have together this morning. I ask that you would pour out your grace upon us. As we know, you, you love to be gracious to us. Give us your supernatural grace as we approach you this morning, Lord, with humble hearts, hungry hearts. We are absolutely dependent on you, Lord, if there is to be anything good that continues to happen in this worship service. We need your help. I need your help. So God, speak to us, I pray. Lord, may, may you increase, may we decrease. May your church be strengthened and nourished, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Pastor Jeff, what's your vision for the church? It's a fair question. You want to know where we're headed. You want to know maybe what things we might tweak, what things maybe we might want to change, areas of need, other areas to press into. Some of you have asked me that question in uh, recent days, and, and you want to know, what does this church kind of look like? What are we going to be about a year from now, five years from now, maybe 10 years from now? It's a good question, but in some ways, it's actually a difficult question to answer because you don't want to be too narrow or too specific. So I could say, you know, my vision for the church is, is to buy a shed. And then we should put the shed in the parking lot, and then we should paint the shed to, so that it matches the church colors. And then you know what we should do with that shed that is in the parking lot? We should fill it with church stuff. Now that's a little underwhelming, isn't it? Maybe it's a lot underwhelming. And in large part, thanks to Pastor Dave and several of you, like that's what we have. So mission accomplished, vision satisfied. So whatever the vision is, it, it's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be larger. It's got to be broader than that. So I suppose I could go in the complete opposite direction and say, you know what we really need? We need a really, really big vision, bigger than any church that has ever existed or ever will exist. When I lived in uh, Cincinnati, uh, I was a youth pastor at a, a church there, and there were many members of our church, dozens, of, in fact, members of our church, who also were employed by Procter & Gamble. P&G, they're big in Cincinnati. And uh, Procter & Gamble is, I think, an $80 billion company. And they have a very big vision and a very broad, expansive vision. Here it is, to provide products and services to improve the lives of the world's consumers. So I remember talking to my friend Roy, who was an engineer there, employed for almost three decades at that point. And he said, yeah, basically, Jeff, we, we make stuff people need and we hope that people will buy. So they want you to really love your toilet paper and your toothpaste and your window cleaner. And it seems like they're, they're doing just fine on that. So, so what's the vision of the church? Is it supposed to be that big and broad, maybe expansive like that? So is the vision of the church to say, well, to, to love God and to love our neighbor? I mean, I think we'd all agree with that. The elders would get on board with that. We could have some buy-in with that. But what does that actually really look like? I think we could probably spend 
a whole lot of time and energy and come up with some very colorful organizational charts, but we may get so bogged down in trying to figure out exactly what that looks like in our context here that we may not actually get around to actually doing it and fulfilling the vision. So our vision can't be too small that we can basically accomplish it in an afternoon, and it can't be so big and broad that we're still a little bit fuzzy on what it is that we're actually supposed to be doing. Now, in our day, as you know, there are all kinds of books and resources and podcasts that we might listen to that would seek to help us answer this really important question of what we're supposed to be doing as a local church. And in an effort to answer that question of vision, some churches and some church leaders have, have defaulted really to pure pragmatism. The vision and the mission of the church is basically to do whatever works to attract people. Whatever it is to keep the lights on and the sanctuary full. So if that means we need to change the sermon, we need to alter songs, we need to brew better coffee, we need to have more comfortable chairs, well then we ought to do it. Because after all, it's, it's all about the ABCs of church, isn't it? Attendance, buildings, and cash. I don't think you'd ever read that coming into a local church. I don't think you'd probably ever hear that, at least that brazenly from the pulpit, but in theory and in practice, when you kind of examine some practical ministries, it would be hard maybe to think otherwise. But that can't be the vision of a local church, attendance, buildings, and cash. In other words, if you were to ask our elders, GCF Valley here, like, what are you guys passionate about? Wh where are we going? What do you really, where do you really uh, think the Lord's going to do? And we just say, you know what, we're really, we're all about the ABCs here. We want a lot a lot more people, we want a bigger building, and we want a lot of money in the bank. Well, that would be cause for concern, wouldn't it? And you ought to just keep working your way through the alphabet, A, B, C, D, depth. N not like I hope you die, pastor, but like death to really growing and maturing as a believer, death to really fulfilling the vision of what we're supposed to be about here as a local church. So here is my audacious claim this morning the best vision for the church the right vision for a local church like ours the ultimate vision for the church needs to come from jesus amen why because he's head of the church he's head of the church because no one has ever done for his church for his people what Jesus has done, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And here's what he has done, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul, again, speaking of the atonement, Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, that is, we were wandering away in rebellion against him at, at our worst, Christ died for us. In Ephesians 5, 25, in the context of marriage, Paul gives this example. Husbands, love your wives. And just in case, I mean, Paul knows his audience. There's a lot of guys here are thinking, okay, but what does that really look like? I got questions. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? 
gave himself up for her. He died for her. So nobody loves the church more than Jesus. Not you, not me, not anybody. Nobody ever will. Because nobody has sacrificed more for us, for his people, than Jesus. So I think we can all agree, can't we, that if we want to know what we're supposed to be about, if we want to have some sense for where we're going, what we ought to be passionate about as a local church, we ought to listen to Jesus. His vision for the church is, in fact, the best vision for us. And for all of the, the differences, as I look out here, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of commonalities that we share here, but there's, there's enough differences among us, differences in uniquenesses and age and season of life and personality and giftedness and so forth. For all of the differences, I hope that we can agree this morning that the best vision for the church is the one that Jesus actually gives to his disciples here in Matthew chapter 28 and by extension then to all of us. So Matthew 28, it's not, it's not only the climax of Matthew's gospel, it's also the very final words of Jesus. And it's not a stretch to say that if you were given that opportunity, that moment where you could say a few last words to family members and loved ones gathered around, you would really want those to count, wouldn't you? You'd really want to think through that a little and make sure that you communicate clearly and accurately from the heart. Evidently, one man decided that he would rather put his last words on his tombstone. And so that's what he did. And so on his tombstone are two words. Oh, no. And those were his last words. Now, I hope that you can do better than that. And I hope that you actually want to do better than that. But Jesus here, before he ascends into heaven, he gives his disciples his last words. Here's, what I, here's, what I, here's what's really important, guys. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to be about. And so we're going to get to those famous last words of Jesus here. And we're going to see how those last words of Jesus really do define our mission and our vision here as a local church. But I want you to notice first what can be, uh, what is so often overlooked in this very familiar passage. You'll notice verse 18, Jesus has got his disciples gathered around. They're on that mountain. All eyes are on him. And he says to them, go, make disciples, baptize, teach to obey, and I will be with you in fact, to the very end. This is referred to as the Great Commission. Leading up to this point, though, and we have seen this in our studies in the Gospel of Mark. And if you were to track the ministry of Jesus here all the way through the Gospel of Matthew, we would see this as well. That the ministry of Jesus has been both purposeful and powerful. Jesus has been tempted in the wilderness by Satan. But he dethroned Satan using the word of God. He's proclaimed the truth about the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God is not like any other earthly kingdom. In fact, you, it's important that you, you live in the kingdom of God because that's the only kingdom in which there is hope for all eternity. He's cast out demons. He's ministered to the sick. He's healed the sick. He's worked miracles. Jesus has suffered and died on the cross. And now at the end of Matthew chapter 28, all the 11 remaining disciples, remember Judas, no longer there, they're gathered on this mountain. And Jesus 
has directed them. And notice what these disciples, what these 11 guys are doing. Verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. Now, yes, Matthew also tells us that some of them doubted. They're still trying to put all the pieces together. How does this all fit? I mean, this is kind of be a mind-blowing moment, wouldn't it? They've not yet been clothed with power from on high at Pentecost. So, yeah, their faith is, is weak. We could even say it's probably flickering a little bit. But their initial response to Jesus here is profoundly significant. They are worshiping him. So my first answer, brothers and sisters, to the question of, hey, Pastor Jeff, what, what's the vision for the church? Is to remind us of who we are essentially to be. And that's worshipers. The first really defining characteristic of the church, of a local church like ours, is that we are a people committed to worshiping Jesus Christ. So we are, first of all, brothers and sisters, a people on our knees in prayer before we ever get on our feet in mission. Because if we are not first on our knees in worship, we're going to have some problems moving forward. Because we're not going to really know exactly what we're supposed to be doing. We are worshipers first and foremost. Worship is ultimate. Worshiping Jesus Christ is what you and I were made for. And worship is what the triune God deserves. Now, I know many of you here, you get that, you understand that. And so just think with me very practically about what it is we do here Sunday after Sunday as we gather for corporate worship in this 90 minutes. There's actually a lot of things that we want to accomplish during this time. There, There are announcements to give. There are areas of need to highlight. There are prayers to pray. There are songs to sing. There's life of the church updates. But corporate worship is not a means to that end or to some other end. Worshiping Jesus Christ as king, glorifying God for who he is, for his worth. He's the treasure. That is the end. Worshiping Jesus in all of his glory and splendor is is what we're all going to be doing for all eternity. And so our worship of Christ as king, especially as we gather corporately Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, is actually what provides the rocket fuel for our mission. That's that's what uh, our sincere worship of Jesus, in fact, fuels everything that we do. As you think about evangelism and service and all the different things that we would want to do as a local church. So that's why when we all enter this building and you come in and even if you just sort of look a little bit above, you see that it's not just a blank wall. There's actually words written on that wall. And it's really important. We really actually believe that, wholeheartedly believe that. It's not just to fill up white space. GCF Valley exists for one purpose, to glorify God through gospel-centered worship. Worshiping the triune God is what we were made for and what we are created for. So there's no greater calling, there's no higher joy than to be among those who can gather as we're doing, worshiping Jesus Christ. 
And that includes, brothers and sisters, the Sundays when you are dragging yourself here. And that includes the Sundays when you are dragging those around you here as well. And so perhaps this might be an area of growth for many of us in this room. Going from, I, I should be there. I, I know I probably need to be there. I'm supposed to be there. It's the right thing to do. To, I want to be there. I, I, I need to be here. I can't imagine going through a, this week without first gathering with the saints to worship God. My point is this. The climax of your week is actually not the Friday night football game. And it's actually not the Saturday afternoon barbecue. And it's not the half-off sale that ends Wednesday night. No, there's a growing sense in our hearts that a corporate gathering such as this, where we gather to worship God, is in fact a gift from God that none of us actually deserve to be here. The fact that we are called sons and daughters, that we've been adopted by God, that speaks to the magnificence of God, not the greatness of us. So we can worship God. We can sing praises to God. We can hear God's word because of his great mercy given for us. Because in our great need, yes, God sent Jesus who died for us on the cross because of his great redemption for us. He has made us new. We are new creatures. We now have new hearts. So every Sunday when we gather, there is a sense where, well, it kind of is Easter Sunday every Sunday. Why? Because every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Because we are celebrating that the tomb is empty. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. And so a Sunday then, a Sunday without gathering with the saints, something's off. It just seems abnormal. It's odd. So church, we need to be reminded that we are first a people on our knees in worship. That's our calling before we are ever on our feet in mission. But on our feet, we do go and we must go. So what then is the vision that Jesus has for us? My second answer to that question is to remind us of what we are called by Jesus to do. And that is to make disciples. Verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now we read that and I think our maybe initial response, particularly in English there, is to say, wow, there, there's a lot in that. That's a whole lot. Jesus, I mean, he doesn't mince words there. There's a lot, of, a lot of verbs in that. There's a lot of action required. It seems like if we're going to be faithful to that, we had better get to it, buckle up, here we go. And there's, there's truth to that. But I think what's really helpful here in understanding exactly what Jesus is zeroing in on there with those 11 disciples uh, is, is to understand, or at least have a little bit of understanding of how the Greek language really operates and actually by extension, how English really operates. So yes, we're, we're going back to school here, folks, just for a few minutes. In the Greek, this great commission contains one main verb, one command verb. It's in the imperative mood, and then there are three modifying 
participles. So this one main verb carries with it the force of a command. We all know what a command is. Eat your breakfast, clean your room, pack your bags. It's a command. This one main command verb is make disciples. And the three modifying participles, how do you know what a participle is? Look for the ing. So the participles are going, baptizing, and teaching. So these three participles explain, describe how we are to make disciples. We make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Now, all of those participles, the going, the baptizing, and the teaching, they have the force of, of like an ought. So these are things that we ought to do, grow in doing them faithfully. But my point here is that there's, there's one main command in this Great Commission. There's one main vision and mission that Jesus gives to his disciples, and that is to make disciples. To make disciples. The going, the baptizing, and the teaching, well, that fleshes out how it is that we are to do that, how we are to make disciples. But make disciples is, in fact, what we are to do. So we could very accurately translate this verse. It would kind of read like this. Going, therefore, make disciples. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing and teaching them. Now this, again, this Greek command verb, to make disciples, mathetusite, you can impress your friends and students tomorrow with that, just stay humble when you do that. What's important about that is that it's, it's in the second person plural. And so you're thinking, well, what difference does that make, Frankie? Well, here's the difference. It means then that that central command to make disciples, it doesn't just apply to the leader of the group, Peter. And it doesn't just apply to, let's say, that inner circle of leaders, Peter, James, and John. But in fact, it applies to all the 11 disciples who are there that day, and they're hearing the life-changing, really life-altering uh, words of Jesus. So all the disciples receive that same mandate, make disciples. It's not just the leader. It's not just the really exceptional disciples who are really relationally savvy or they're extraordinarily gifted. It's all the disciples. And remember, as we've seen in our studies in, in the book of Mark, all those disciples are very ordinary guys. Simple, we might say. Leading very simple and ordinary lives who gave up everything to follow Jesus. And so this, this mission, this, this purpose that Jesus sets forth here, forth here in his famous last words is, is very clear. Jesus envisions his disciples making other disciples. And that is still the purpose and the mission for his people, for us today. It's what we're supposed to be about, making disciples. And we really don't need to overthink this. We know this is a command to make disciples. And we, and we know that continues for us today because of verse 20. Jesus says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the command that Jesus gives to make disciples must go as far as the promise extends. And the promise extends for how long? Five years? Ten years? Twenty years? No, Jesus says till the very end of the age. So what's your vision for GCF Valley, Pastor Jeff? Well, Jesus 
has a far greater vision than Jeff does and a far greater vision than any of the elders do. His vision for us as a church is to be a worshiping people who make disciples of all people. And so you might wonder at this point, okay, I can get my head around that, but what actually is a disciple? Because I've heard that term. Seems like it's a fairly loaded term. Uh, if you read that on a page, it, it, it looks eerily like the word discipline. You think, I, I don't really want any part of that, so I'm out. Or perhaps you're here and you think, you know, a disciple of Jesus, isn't that like a, isn't that kind of a special class of Christians? Those are kind of like the super Christians that sit in the front and take meticulous notes for sermons. No, not exactly. Could be, but doesn't have to be. A disciple is not simply a convert. A disciple is not simply a person who has heard about Jesus and who, who can affirm a set of beliefs, a set of practices, some very key doctrines. Disciple is not just a casual fan of Jesus who more or less agrees that, yeah, he's God. He did what he said he would do. Nor is a disciple of Jesus someone who's working really hard to be kind and, and is a good neighbor. The word disciple actually occurs 269 times in the New Testament. I counted every last one of them. You know how many times the word Christian appears? Three. And so Luke, our early church historian, he actually uses the terms interchangeably. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And when he, that is Barnabas, had found him, Saul, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so Luke, by using these terms interchangeably, is actually teaching us a very important truth. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. So yes, as I look out here today, among us here today, are many, many disciples of Jesus. We have young disciples and slightly older disciples. We have disciples who are men and disciples who are women. We have well-educated disciples. We have perhaps less educated disciples. We have uh, disciples with formal theological training, and the vast majority of disciples do not. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple. That means then, brothers and sisters, that the life of a disciple is not some uh, super uh, Christian kind of meeting and group where like everybody's there to learn how to walk on water and to live like a monk. Not at all. In the New Testament, the life of discipleship is in fact the life of every Christian. And that really gets to, to the heart, to the meat of, of what a disciple actually is. And, and the easiest way to describe a disciple is that a disciple is simply a learner an apprentice, a learner, a pupil, a student. So in other words, as a disciple of Jesus, we're always in the classroom of Jesus to learn from him how we're supposed to live, to learn from him what we are supposed to love, what are the things that we're supposed to hate, to learn from him how to both live and love. And this kind of learning isn't just mere head knowledge or academic learning. In fact, it is a whole heart, whole life learning, the kind of learning that occurs when you sit at the feet of Jesus and you listen to him and you are learning to obey him. You might wonder why 
why would I want to listen to Jesus? I mean, I get he's head of the church, but give me something more. Okay, here's the something more. Jesus has the best information about the most important issues in your life for all eternity, issues of life and death. Nobody loves you more than Jesus. Nobody cares about you more than Jesus. Nobody more than Jesus can actually help whatever the circumstance in your life this morning. That's why we, we are to listen to him. So to be a disciple of Jesus then means that ordinary people like you and me are learning more and more to, to think like him and then to act like him, kind of look like him. We, we love like him. We worship him. And then we help others do the very same thing. So disciples of Jesus are people who are following Jesus and they're looking around and trying to help others follow Jesus as well. That, brothers and sisters, is central to what we are about here. We, we glorify God by worshiping him and making disciples. So when we think about the, the aim of, well, what we're doing here, corporate worship or uh, Ladies of Grace Night or Adult Sunday School or Home Groups or Children's Sunday School, really it's essentially the same. We want to, to make disciples, mature disciples, grow as disciples. And so it really means that we need to ask, well, we need to evaluate. How are we doing in that? How can, how can we do that more effectively? I'm going to talk more about that next week and really give some practical application for uh, some of the things that we're thinking about as elders and where we're at as a church. But, but this question then is, is how, does, how does anything that we do here, how does this particular ministry move people from darkness to light? from spiritual infancy to maturity, growing maturity, from maybe a position of maturity to even greater maturity, to, to reproduction, to multiplication, because Jesus envisions his followers to imitate him and to reproduce ourselves. So we're making disciples as we imitate Jesus, and that's really an important distinction. We're not making disciples by imitating, strictly speaking, Pastor Dave or me or your home group leader. We have a role to play. But ultimately, you're, we're not making disciples of Jeff here. You understand that? Or Dave or anybody else. Our goal is to make disciples of Jesus. And so that comes, the process, as we learn from Jesus what he's like, who he's like. And we seek to help others do that the same. So disciples are people who follow and imitate Jesus. When my son JT was young, I think he was maybe three or four, one hot summer afternoon, I think he saw me in the backyard. I was uh, cutting the grass and it was hot. I just remember sweating a lot and probably thinking I'd like to be doing something else at this point. Uh, so there I go. I'm going back and forth across the back lawn. And wouldn't you know it, a couple minutes later, trailing behind me is uh, JT with his little toy mower. So I'm sweating, he's rejoicing. The dad models, the son imitates. And soon, the son actually is cutting the grass, and so then the dad rejoices. It's a beautiful thing. 
but, but he says we're following in the footsteps. And that, that's what we're called to do. Jesus is out in front of us, and we want to follow in his footsteps. We want to learn to imitate him. The dad models the son imitates. So my second answer, brothers and sisters, to this question of what's the vision of the church is to remind us of what we are called to do. We are worshipers of Jesus called to make disciples of Jesus. And this is an incredibly great vision, an incredible mission. It's so great in its scope that it will never be fully accomplished and completed this side of eternity. So there, there's never going to be a day when I stand up here and say, good news, I did it. Just turned the last disciple off the line. We're done. Let's buy another shed. No. I mean, we might buy another shed, but I mean, this, this great commission is so expansive in its width that it actually involves every single Christian. Any other vision would be too small. It would be too paltry. Only the goal of making disciples is actually big enough to fill the entire world. And so if that is what Jesus is after for his disciples, for us, then that means that he is after you and your heart. Because every disciple has a role to play. Now, again, what, what this ex exactly looks like, uh, I'm going to talk more about that next week, so I hope you come back and, and give some real practical application, and it'll be a chance to uh, give you a sense for some of the weekly opportunities that God has given us here and how we're thinking about that uh, in the months ahead. But this uh, privilege and responsibility of making disciples not just for the elders here. It's not just for our really, really committed home group leaders or for the really, really mature people here. It is the responsibility and the privilege of every Christian. And our heart here, brothers and sisters, is that we would help you find that spot, that we would be able to pray with you and walk with you and help you figure out what does that look like for you as we think about our church here. Let me just close this morning with some confidence. Our confidence, brothers and sisters, to to even participate in this great commission, our confidence is not because we're smart enough. And it's not because we have some really great people here, though we do. It's not because we have this robust home group ministry, but we do. Our confidence to make disciples is because we belong to Jesus Christ by faith, and Jesus has all authority. That's the ground of our confidence. And as his disciples, we bear witness to his rule and to his reign in our hearts and in our lives. And this Jesus has promised us, verse 20, that yes, I will be with you to the very end, to the end of the age. And we say, well, what about tomorrow? Because I don't really want to go to work tomorrow. Are you going to be with me there? Or what about next week or next month? And Jesus says, yes, I'm going to be with you there. What about Jesus when tragedy strikes? What about when my five-year plan for my life is suddenly in the dumpster on fire? What about when the anxieties threaten to crush me? Lord, are you going to be there then? 
And Jesus says, yes, even now, I will be with you to the very end of the age. That's our confidence. And so what that means then is confidence like that for people like us means that we can move forward in faith. You know what else it means? That we can actually take some risks. I wonder, uh, sometimes I think, I was doing this last week, I mean, I was thinking a lot this last week, I don't just think, I think a lot. <laughs> what I meant to say was driving around this week, I was thinking, Lord, what, what is this church gonna look like in 2032, 10 years from now? And I hope 10 years from now that we might be able to look back and we'll be able to give thanks and praise to God. What are the sorts of things that 10 years from now you might look back and really praise God for and thank him for? I hope 10 years from now you can look back and praise God for an increased awareness in your life of the role that you have to play in this great commission, this vision of making disciples, this vision that Jesus has set before us this morning. You know the great thing in that, and I'll say more about this next week, you don't have to wait for a program to start. In fact, you want a very simple way to make disciples this week? You can invite someone else over for a, for a meal at your house. And you don't even have to be a great cook. And you can use paper plates. And your house is okay if it's messy. Because you know what? The people coming over, their house is even messier. And so they'll just fit right in. I hope 10 years from now we can look back and celebrate many, many baptisms of new believers, new disciples. I trust 10 years from now we'll be able to look back and we'll see that this is a church uh, inviting people from all walks of life to find a church home here. I hope 10 years, maybe it's 20 years, might even be 25 years from now, but we can look back and say, those new elders up on stage, they were in our Sunday school. And right now, there's a nine-year-old boy or a 15-year-old boy, this is a little bit scary, but that the Lord might tap and say, yeah, you're going to be an elder at this church one day. How cool would that be? I mean, I hope when we look back 10 years from now, we could take joy in supporting gospel work all over the globe, and that every year we would say, Lord, we want to be even more generous. With all your money that you've given to us, we want to just freely give that out, support more gospel-centered churches all over the globe. Ten years from now, when we look back, I, I hope that people who come here that are broken and weary and their souls are downcast would find this to be a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ flows into the cracks and crevices of their hearts and brings peace, great encouragement, hope for the days ahead. I hope we can look back ten years from now and see that the shepherding and the training that we've done has actually resulted in making more mature disciples of Jesus, disciples who are then making other disciples, and they are making other disciples. And yeah, I hope 10 years from now, when we can look back, we can see that our corporate worship really hasn't changed. There's nothing new in that sense. We are still going to hold out Jesus Christ as the hope for all humanity. And that's not going to change. And I hope that 10 years from now when we look back that we might be able to see how God has used pretty ordinary people 
like us, to do some pretty extraordinary things. Train up more men, plant more churches, encourage gifted women to see all of us flourish spiritually. But on top of all of that, you know what I really hope 10 years from now? That we can look back and give thanks to God that our confidence is even less in ourselves and so much more in him and his grace and the spirit in us. That's what I hope. I don't remember, I'm of the age now, that I don't remember too much about high school except an, an insatiable desire not to be there and to move. And by God's grace, he made it possible to come to a foreign country and not leave. But I do remember for several of the years during high school that the Baptist church that I grew up in, Emmanuel Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario, Canada, I do remember that on that weekly bulletin, there was always one statement printed there. Again, I don't remember many of the sermons. That's not your excuse. I don't remember the songs that we sang. I don't even remember tons of the people. But I do remember getting a bulletin every Sunday, and it would be hard to miss this. Just written on the top of that bulletin was this one statement. It's from William Carey, who was a missionary to India in the early 1800s, really the, the founder of the modern missionary movement. Here's what he said. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. That might mean leading guides, leading your children and wife in family devotions. It doesn't mean you have to go across the world. There's a whole lot of different things that that might mean, doesn't it? Attempt great things for God. And because God is so good and kind and gracious and because he loves us, we can expect great things from God. I, I think that's a vision worth living for. I think that's a vision worth, frankly, dying for. Giving everything.